0: how can you be part of a religious community that's straight up sometimes it feels like the church is trying to move the seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest why are they so obsessed with keep trying to get answers but they of a even know the question the church is the most vocal, political voice against immigration. the church is still don't they claim i worship with the actual do how can you the church seems to be stuck in their ways
1: when the rest how is that actually it seems like so much of the, so the
0: church's church being a good Anticritical American. thinking, being a good homophobic, Christian. too narrow, judgmental, and disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world.
1: Ah, <sighs> The church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today, our very special guest is Damon Garcia. And Damon is a writer, video essayist, and public theologian. His work is centered around the intersection between liberation and faith. He's the author of The God Who Riots, Taking Back the Radical Jesus, which we will be talking about today. That came out on Broadleaf. And it what What was the release date? Last week or the week
0: before? Yeah, exactly. Or almost exactly a week ago, on August oh, t- what? Yeah. Tuesday? Tuesday.
1: Oh, it's awesome, man. That's fun. The first week energy, dude. That's so cool. But yeah, this is the... There
0: is the first podcast I'm on right after the podcast, the book is out. That's dope, man. I
1: appreciate you doing this. Uh, Damon lives in Santa Maria, California. And I will try to remember to say this at the end, but you can follow Damon's work on Twitter and Instagram at at whoisdamon. You can find him at Damon Garcia. And if they look for you on YouTube where you do your video essays, is that just typing in Damon Garcia? Yeah damon garcia that you'll find him especially if you write damon garcia the god who riots then you'll be linked you'll be moved towards all of his videos and video essays on youtube so please do that after you listen to this today so yeah let's stop right there damon man thank you so much for taking the time to be with me personally and with the church needs therapy listeners today
0: yeah thank you for inviting me i'm excited to be here i'm excited about the book being out too and I'm excited yeah. to talk about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's so cool. And where where did you guys do the uh the book release party? It was at a brewery in Santa Barbara.
0: Yeah, a third window brewery. Yeah, that was really fun. We like uh filled out the this barrel room that they had in the back and talked about the book, did a QA, signed some books. So this is my first book. So this is all very new and very exciting. Yeah. And how old are you? Twenty-nine. So so
1: how yeah. like on a personal creative vocational level, how is it preparing, having things in you for so long, mm-hmm. seeing the book for the first time, having the book come out and how that party went? Like how, how was that party? Like, how was the vibe? How did you feel about that?
0: Yeah. I'm learning a lot about myself mm-hmm. during all this because I feel like my creative self has always been like the main self, the part of myself that I relate with the most. And I, in high school, I was uh, making music. I, I did a little, had a little bit of a season of Christian rap going on in mm-hmm. high school, which was interesting. And then I felt called into ministry when I was 18, 19. And then I started on that journey, j- joined this ministry program in my church and started doing sermons. And I felt like, I felt the most fulfilled doing that. And, but at the beginning, since the beginning, it's always felt like I'm just now creatively connecting spiritual ideas mm-hmm. and putting them together. And even now I feel like when i I can have conversations with theologians, even theologians in a- academic environments, and we can relate and talk a lot about the same stuff. But I feel like most understood if I'm having a conversation with someone else who creates things, even if it's completely different things. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, I have learned a lot about my creative patterns throughout this whole process, because the book Mm -hmm. is the biggest project I've ever done. And the longest time taken to do a project I've ever done. And so some of my Uh, unhealthy creative patterns have been exposed by doing such a long project that went unnoticed and little projects. And so little things like, like hyper-focusing to the point where it's unhealthy, where Mm -hmm. I neglect uh, different parts of my life or different Mm -hmm. people in my life. It's like, that was okay. If I was working on a project that took a couple of days, Because it's okay if I neglect things for a couple of days, but for months, no, not at all. It's like I really got exposed. So Mm. I feel like I'm growing into a a different person that can approach this stuff more healthier. And then the other thing, I felt like I was holding off all celebration until release day because I knew we were going to have this big launch event. And I felt like I I became convinced that if I were to celebrate too much throughout the process, that I would. I would, um, lose motivation to keep doing the work that I needed to do mm-hmm. and promoting and all that. Cause that was a whole lot of work too. And then we got to that day and it all went by so fast. Of course. It's like, it was, wed- it's like a so, wedding. It's like a wedding. Yes. That's what, that's what's <laughs> funny. I was telling people uh, there, there were 60 people there. I knew most of them and there was, a lot of stuff I missed, a lot of interactions I missed. There's people that Mm -hmm. came and went and I never got to talk to them. And I was explaining this to a friend and they said, yeah, I've heard people explain weddings that way. It's like everyone I love is in one place. I hardly got to talk to anybody. That's how it was. And then it was over. And I feel like, oh, I think I was wrong about holding off celebration. And I think next time I should just celebrate the whole time, the Mm -hmm. whole season of celebration instead of holding it off and then it being gone in a snap. And yeah. now I'm in a different season of promoting the book after it's out and interacting with people and talking about this stuff after it's out and uh, yeah and, and I'm still learning so this is all it's all new yeah and all exciting yeah, but I'm, I'm very proud of the book I was able to create and I was able to do it with Broadleaf Books who's really awesome and I'm excited for what's to come. Yeah,
1: is that what's the the guy who's like the head of Broadleaf? <clears throat> I don't know. Oh, it's not. I, know, like I, know, I just know a okay. team of
0: people. Yeah. They used I, to be more, people may be more familiar with Fortress Press, if okay, they are yeah, familiar yeah. at all. And which is like a, a name that's been pretty big deal in like progressive Christian or um, these uh, academic spaces. And so it's Fortress Press for a long time was putting out academic stuff and popular stuff. And then a couple years ago, they decided to split. So now Fortress is just academic stuff and their sister publication Broadleaf just does the popular stuff and so I was able to come in like right after that split
1: that's awesome yeah Yeah, even even the first things you said there's so much I want to say about that and one I think connecting with creatives on such a natural level like Pete my wife and I started and led a church here for 10 years we just closed it down recently like month like a few months ago and I think pastors and leaders don't realize one, how much creativity and how much content and art. And like, if you give a sermon almost weekly, like that's 30 minutes of original work a week. You know a lot about the creative process, even if you don't think of yourself as an artist or creative. And that's why in our neighborhood here, I've always had that same connection with designers A person who's they're in graph they're in multimedia they're doing this because we all have a similar flow that we're doing we have different ways it go no matter what the content is the the process the flow of it where it's born out of it they're so connected so like that's such Mm -hmm. a universal thing that people experience while they're creating and you know i didn't grow up you know after i went to catholic school like first second third grade and i was like i'm out you know that went to public school which i tell people like in law i went to la la unified school district fourth grade public school i'm like this is salvation for me at this age we can fight we can cuss nobody's not even that big of a deal yeah and i had zero interaction with anything like evangelical culture growing up because i stopped going to church after i didn't know it existed i didn't know anything about it right but i had a long history with hip hop which i'm not going to go into right now and then when i had this profound awakening moment with god at 18 while on mushrooms and then a couple years later i get connected with a uh, like a pretty standard low church charismatic you know thing out here when i was in hawaii and i went through a season where i was like i'm really trying with christian rap yeah like, I'm really trying to like, listen, I'm really trying to like it. I'm really trying to do this. And at that point I needed distance from like my old community and neighborhood and all that. And I don't know how long it lasted, but I was just like, I can't do this. It's no more.
0: I feel you. Oh, well, I remember back then in high school, I was, uh, there was a ton of Christian rap. I disliked very much. Um, and I was into the people who were more experimental, like, I'm sure many people have heard of Pigeon John, Ellie Symphony, mm-hmm. Mars Ill. They were, and, and they were constantly criticized by a Christian rap people for not talking about Jesus enough when really it's like, they understood this whole thing is about Jesus. And like, this is where all my creativity comes from. I'm just talking about life, which of course is connected to Jesus and other people. It felt like, no, you need to have this many Jesus's per minute JPMs in your song. And it's like now it's it's, the whole thing is so much bigger than that and to this day i look back and it's like i cringe at a lot of christian rap those
1: guys (laughs) yeah that's
0: cool i think like i'm so happy i was listening to those guys because some of the stuff they're creating is stuff to this day i've still never seen anywhere else meanwhile a bunch Mm. of christian rappers are just trying to be the christian version of whoever
1: Mm, yeah. Mm. yeah. I, you know, I haven't heard that name LA symphony for a long time, but even <laughs> at back then when I'm like, okay, there's this underground LA hip hop scene, which I was around. And then just mainstream artists. Then I get introduced to Christian rap, but I feel like, Oh, my friends who used to be in underground LA hip hop, they know who pigeon John is, you know, they, they yeah. know LA symphony cause there's those shows are all just so intertwined. So that's a, that's a whole other topic, but it would be so cool if there were a lot more people of faith who were grounded in this tradition, but have this lens through liberation and through yeah. the God who writes, who are then creating the art and music out of it. And I'm sure there is more out there than I'm aware of, but I've, you know, I had a season where I was like, man, freaking like, I don't I don't even remember who the big. Because I'm like almost ten years older, who the big Christian rappers were, but I was Church really G5 like,
0: two. I'm trying. Exactly. I'm really, I'm supposed <laughs> yeah. to like Lecrae. this stuff, but I was like, then <laughs> yeah. I just the,
1: the game's newest album came out oh, in yeah. 2005. I'm like oh, I got to go back.
0: Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it makes um, sense.
1: You know, I'm really fascinated by the process of people moving from Mm -hmm. some sort of conventional form of faith, some version of Christianity that is, you know, sort of accepted in the status quo into one that is defined by liberation that takes the radical Jesus seriously, or for the sake of the podcast, we can say one who gets to know the God who riots. Mm -hmm. And so for you, if you were doing like, if you were involved in Christian rap stuff in high school, I would assume there's a history for you in the church. Yeah. And then what, what are those pivotal paradigm shifting movements where you're like, whoa, this is actually bigger and Mm -hmm. better and more radical than what I've been known. That sort of puts you on that trajectory towards a widening scope of liberation. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I, my parents started going to church when I was two, because they both felt like they needed a radical life change. And my mom's sister had started to go to church. So they felt like, I guess this is where you go when you want to change your life. They'd been both drug addicts and alcoholics. My dad had been in and out of prison and they found a church. uh, It was a Pentecostal church that really focused on like deliverance. And so it was all about like personal transformation and that's what they needed And what's interesting is looking back at the time, it was very much a story of they transformed and this is what Jesus does in people's lives. And I still believe that. But looking back, I'm also able to see the community played a huge part in their transformation as well Mm -hmm. to have for, for the first time to have a supportive community that supported their growth and encouraged them to learn and change and help other people. That was huge. And I remember when I was a little kid in elementary school, I remember I was in kids' church one time and there was this kid there that was from my elementary and he was mean to me and my friends at school. And so seeing him in church was mind-blowing. And I was Mm -hmm. thinking like the the kids at school who are mean are probably definitely not Christian. And the kids who are nice (laughs) are probably definitely Christian. Um, And then, so I saw him and then they asked us this question of like, who wants to accept Jesus or something? And he raised his hand and I was even more shocked because I'm like, oh my God. no and then yeah but i was happy because i felt like oh this must mean he's gonna be nice to me and my friends now if he becomes mm. a christian and then the next day at school i was uh in p class on the blacktop talking to my friends and i said richard got saved last night and then they said saved from what and i was mm. stumped i didn't i didn't know what to say at all. i was like <laughs> What do you mean? I thought everyone knew what that meant. And then I, but I think it's funny, like looking back at that and realizing as a little kid, I had a understanding that being a Christian meant you would live differently and you would interact with people differently and you would be better and treat people better. And so it's, I think growing up, I always had that vision. And then as I started to learn more, I realized Like, yeah, now I have an argument for why Christianity is about how you live in the world and realizing in the the very first chapter is called saved from what? And I talk about salvation and how in the Bible, first of all, salvation is always understood communally, not individualistically. Mm -hmm. It's about a community being saved. And it begins with an understanding of salvation from the Exodus, which is God frees us from slavery. And we and, and they as the, the Bible goes on, they end up being taken over by Babylon and are crying out for salvation again, which is very material, real on this earth. We are freed from the oppression we are facing. We're saved from the oppression we're facing. And then the New Testament, it does get personal. And yet it's still about how we are saved within the community, which is, I mean, you see in the book of Acts where it's like a community of people are sharing property and taking care of one another. And it says at the end of that kind of description, and the Lord added to the number of those who are being saved. Mm. Like it was very material. And it, I'm, I'm sure it does have something to do with our soul as well. But I th- mm. at this point in my life, I feel like I don't know exactly what is happening with my soul when I'm saved. But I think that's Mm. God's business way more than my business. And so I am way more interested in what does it look like materially when we Mm. are saved and when we choose to live this Mm. different kind of life. And so I kept exploring that as I joined into ministry when I was 19 and started learning more, taking Bible college classes. And as I kept reading and researching more, because this is such a huge responsibility to be in ministry, I found myself. Uh, coming outside of the theological boundaries they had set up, I mm. felt like they gave me the tools to grow, and then I hit the ceiling mm. and I had to break free. And so I left. I, Well, actually, I'd spent years really trying to synthesize ideas and make everything work, trying to change things from the inside, and then to the point where it was impossible. I was about to get my pastoral license and go through this interviewing process, and I knew I couldn't answer any of their questions honestly. And so I left in August, 2017, and then I felt like, okay, now I can be honest, fully honest about everything and started making a bunch of YouTube videos and mm. live streams. And then as that started to, uh, get some attention, people, uh, Broadleaf book sent me up about writing a book and
1: oh, awesome. what's,
0: what's fun about the book too, is I got to talk about things I've been learning over the last 10 years of this journey, Mm -hmm. and like you said, chasing after this bigger vision of Christianity, this bigger God. And it's interesting you say that too, because I've only realized after the book has come out and talking to people about it, that that is a huge theme of the book. But I didn't even fully realize that that's a huge theme Mm -hmm. of the book until after it came out and realized like, Oh yeah, this whole thing is about realizing that God is so much bigger and some of the narrow visions of God that we've been handed. And the, the title, The God Who Riots, is in reference to this story in the Gospels where Jesus goes into the temple the last week of his life and flips tables and pours out coins, and it's, it's realizing. Um, and, and then Jesus says, you've turned this place into a den of robbers. And what's interesting is a den of robbers isn't where people are robbed. It's where robbers go and hide to avoid the consequences. So essentially Jesus is accusing the religious leaders of his day of using their religion to hide and avoid the injustices going on in the world. And I think that's more relevant than ever because we all know Christians who do the same thing, who use their religion to hide and avoid injustice. And I think there's a lot of us who grew up thinking, suspecting that Jesus was way more radical than what some of the people around us were making it seem. And a big reason I wrote this book is to confirm those suspicions and be like, Mm -hmm. yes, Jesus is more radical. And God is so much bigger than some of these narrow, unhealthy, oppressive versions and conceptions of God that we were handed.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, I'm I'm like people's unique versions of those growth, those transformations, those paradigm shifts are so contextual. We're all within this larger flow, but it is, all of our individual stories are a stream within this flow. And it, each one of them bears witness to a universal movement that I, that is happening at a broad level, but also it's flowing through the texture, the culture, the uniqueness of our own experience. So that's why the different versions that all of our different stories are so important to tell right now when there are massive changes happening Mm -hmm. and there's such a unique thing going on. So, you know, you tell a story in the book, you mentioned it briefly. I want to return to the 2017, I'm going into this pastor's meeting and you mentioned like some (laughs) Trump stuff that whatever, um, well so what were for you as you're growing, you're like, I'm in ministry. I'm assuming it's still in a Pentecostal evangelical-ish kind of flavor at that point. Mm-hmm. And so you somehow are like, like I think there's a certain amount of churches, I'm like, oh, those are like white evangelicals who read NT right, basically. You know, like <laughs> that's a moment for them. And I I had that moment a long time ago. It's like, whoa, new creation, that's big. Oh, I'm yeah. I'm hearing Brugamon for the first time, or oh now I'm studying liberation theology, black and womanist theology. Latin. There's different versions. Like there's different entry points to these paradigm shifts. So for you, is it like, I'm reading these other books and those are moments that are like, well, cracking open the surface and blowing my mind in a scary, but, but amazing way. And then what was the energy going into the 2017 moment where you're like, this is where I'm at. I have to be honest about it.
0: Yeah. I remember my my experience of being called into ministry was like a double this double experience of I feel like this is what I'm to do and an experience of like deconstruction where it was like realizing the God that I, I thought was there growing up is not there and God is so much bigger and I realizing a lot of the things that evangelicals taught me were not true and so I think a lot of people have an experience like that and then leave. But my experience of that initial questioning and deconstruction was mixed with my calling to ministry. So I, from the very beginning felt like, okay, if if I'm going to do this, it has to be totally different than a lot of the versions of Christianity I grew up with. And so from the very beginning, I'm like, okay, let me, let me try to get a different perspective. And I remember this was in 2012. I remember at the time people were saying this guy rob bell is super controversial (laughs) and he wrote this book called love wins that was super Mm. heretical (laughs) and i at the time i was thinking well i want to get a really wide perspective so let me go to the barnes and noble get that book also let me get the complete other side francis chan's book erasing hell which was Mm. the answer to that book right um and i read both and what's funny is at the time love wins was like the most radical thing i ever read. And then I I didn't realize like, Oh, this is kind of like the two sides of evangelicalism, but there's so much more outside of this corner of Christianity Mm -hmm. that is called evangelicalism. And Mm -hmm. so I just kept reading and learning and, um, finding more and more radical stuff. And I, I remember uh, even discovering the Gnostics when, when I was in this ministry program, you know, the whole Gnosticism movement at the beginning uh, where it's like, at the time i was like really scared because my friend told me <laughs> my friend told me a story that his sister started to read the gnostics and then started to girl, like she lose just her mind evaporated. A
1: bit. she just evaporated in the oh, middle she started
0: the- act, <laughs> i guess act really weird and then go go to everywhere barefoot like she says stop wearing shoes. and they felt like she was like possessed by something and looking back <laughs> looking back it's just a funny story of like oh yeah this girl just became more chill i guess but like yeah <laughs> 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 Yes. but at the time at the time it was like scary and then I told my pastor like is it okay to read things like outside of other and other perspectives and he's like uh yeah I think so and then I said okay well I'm considering reading the Gnostics and then he's like oh that's what you're talking about I have the Gnostic books in my bookshelf it's like mm-hmm. not a big deal and um and it was because he was just getting a, a different perspective but I just kept uh exploring and Mm. it got it what happened to me was as i uh as my theology developed i got to a point where i felt like i could no longer in good conscience and conviction call myself a pentecostal Mm. and then as i kept growing it got to the point where i could no longer call myself an evangelical and then i could no longer call myself a protestant Mm. and it got to the point where i only felt comfortable calling myself a christian Mm -hmm. because of all of this exploration. And so I, and that was pretty early on. I remember I, being an evangel in evangelical ministry telling other pastors exactly what I just said. Mm-hmm. And they didn't, they didn't catch it. I, I think, I think they were just like, okay. Without realizing like,
1: they're all, they're all I just he's told young. They're you. all, he's young. He'll grow out of it. It's just a phase.
0: <laughs> no, I don't really think they realized what I was saying. I don't think they realized yeah, right, I right. was in evangelical ministry telling them I'm not an evangelical. Um, and then they realized, I guess, after I left. But it was a. Uh, I and so in in that exploration, I ended up uh, finding liberation theology, which the, the core idea of liberation theology developed in the 1960s in Latin America by this uh, Latin American priests after Vatican II. They. Uh, The core idea is God has a preferential option for the poor. God prefers to opt for the poor, first and foremost. And so the church should too. And Catholic social teaching was already a thing that had that. that, That's where that quote originally came from. Um, But the difference with liberation theologians and their context of severe poverty and underdevelopment in Latin America was realizing that god is on the side of the poor not in the sense not just in the sense of us giving charity to the poor but also in the sense of the poor struggling for uh power to take power from those who have the power to make them poor and Mm -hmm. at the time there was a lot of revolutions going on in latin america and different countries and you even had uh uh, Catholic priests working with Marxist guerrilla fighters and, um, helping in those revolutions. And that made a lot of people mad and they didn't understand it at all outside of that context. But if you're in that context and you see the severe poverty and oppression that they're facing, it makes total sense that this is where your faith leads you to support these revolutions. And so I, I think a big realization was, um, a a big discovery for me was context And realizing, like you mentioned earlier, how we all have different contexts in our stories and realizing contextual theology has has always been theology. Like growing up, we hear the way that theology is taught in certain churches and and, and it's told to us as if this is what the first Christians were saying and (laughs) saying it in these ways. And then you realize like, oh, this is through a very specific Western American, even Eurocentric lens of the Bible, not just reading the Bible. And then you realize, oh, wait, there's other lenses of the Bible. It reads differently and even more beautifully and liberative from a Latin American perspective or from a womanist perspective, from the perspective of Black women or from a queer perspective and realize all theology is contextual. Mm -hmm. And these other contextual lenses, I think, get at what the Bible is saying in a more radical mm-hmm. way when we realize, Oh yeah, this whole thing is written by those who are poor and oppressed. Mm-hmm. It's the whole thing's from that perspective. And that's who Jesus comes as, as well as one of the poor and the oppressed. Mm-hmm. And so I eventually got to the point where it felt like the liberation theology is just basic theology. Mm-hmm. Like this is just what we're reading here. And now as, as after I've left that environment, it, it really is just basic normal theology a lot of evangelical garbage is now off my radar which is Mm -hmm. cool and fun and i get to have these conversations with people all the time where this is normal and it's um yeah it's it's been it's been really fun and awesome
1: so you uh like i i just love like this that's why i you know (laughs) press those stories for the details because i love all of the because those moments when you start to make connections and the pieces start to fit and it's bigger and better and more beautiful and inspiring and amazing and your commitment to christ your commitment to following the way of jesus is increased with intensity and joy and and uh fire but in some of those same moments Our ego can contract and a bit of fear can settle in because your mind immediately can like you make the connection of what I see and your mind goes, if I see this, it means it's not that and that will affect these relationships and those relationships will affect this community and that will affect my life. You lose some of those relationships. I can't be a part of those churches anymore, not because I don't like them, but my integrity, my own sense of alignment and my commitment to the way of Jesus does not allow me to participate in those because I see them as problematic in whatever ways. Right. Those are those are really, really important moments. and. So often what feels like the loss and the foundation of our faith is actually the spirit inviting us to the future of our faith, even when the majority of the people around us can't see it. That's why I love those moments because everybody like I've had moments where I'm reading and I'm like, I see it. It was beautiful. And my heart sinks into my stomach. I'm like, I know what that means for a lot of relationships. And it's this, Mm -hmm. you know, like Mm -hmm. me studying black and womanist theology in grad school. I have so many awkward ass conversations with white people at that time because this is you know over 10 years ago or whatever as even before systemic racism and institutionalized racism and people don't usually don't even go as far to say institutionalized white supremacy but that wasn't really even in the social consciousness at all like it's increased a little bit the last couple years and you would just know like I cannot not keep going forward. And I want to, and this is where I'm going. And for me, it's like, this is normal. But I also know what this means for relationships and my, my, how I relate to institutions, and I won't be invited there, and this is gonna cause problems. And it just is awkward in relationships too, when you start moving in ways that you see as wider and better and other people see as going off, of course. You know, that's such a fascinating thing, but those stories are important because there's so many people now navigating through that right so i love hearing those those things so
0: yeah i I just want to say too it's interesting how uh part of that journey is also realizing this stuff has always been here and it was hidden from me like even how you talk about like institutionalized racism being in the public consciousness it it was it just wasn't in my personal context you know it's like like even the term institutional racism was being uh, used in the 1960s by Kwame Ture. And it's like, and then you, you become an adult and realize, why have I never heard this? I mean, I could find books that were written way before I was born that's talking about this stuff. And yet the media and um, social media make it seem like we're just barely talking about this when it's like, mm. oh, yeah, this has been a conversation and there's a reason why it's been suppressed. There's a reason why I've never heard of it in these specific environments. Mm. And it, some of that can feel can cause a bit of bitterness and feel like, why, why did they hide this from me? Like, this is so messed mm. up that I never got to experience this, this beautiful versions of theology and politics growing up. And, um, but, and then of course there's, it comes with gratitude as well. It's like, well, at least I found it now and I mm, get to yeah. explore it now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that, that. Where now people are discovering that which has been present already, obviously, you know, in both of us in our in our own journeys, in our own times. But that's a unique moment about where we are culturally, where whether you think about the cultural and political aspect, institutionalized white supremacy, systemic. Like I joke around like 2020, it was like the year everyone was introduced to the idea of systemic racism. You know, and I'm like to me, I'm like now, I'm like if you don't believe in institutionalized white supremacy, you just don't want to. You know, because it's enough, there's enough around that are ent- entry points, like through the news, through this to get into it. If now it's like, it's a willed ignorance, you know, in many ways for people, but that's the cultural moment is those things that which was, has been on the fringes for 30, 40, 50 longer years is now, even with the uh, the conversation about deconstruction being what so many people talk about, that's not new. That transition from mm-hmm. one stage of faith to another, that paradigm shift to this, to if people are familiar with the spiral you know from blue to orange to green to moving forward and forward like that's not brand new but those conversations that were very far on the fringes 10 20 30 years ago are getting closer to the collective center whether it's the church or just society as a whole and that's why there's all of these disruptions right that's why there's more of it present to people like it used to be so simple it was like Now, that which has been lying dormant and affecting our atmosphere and institutions and lives in practical and concrete ways is now more and more being revealed for the truth of what it is. You know, that's that's one question I ask people over the last couple of years is I remember early on with coronavirus, (laughs) that post George Floyd uprising moment public demonstrations, the end of the Trump era. Like for me, I was seeing that as apocalyptic. And I started seeing other yeah. people were using language for that, right? And you know, like, I'm not saying apocalyptic in some rapture sense of it, apocalyptic as the Greek word to unveil and reveal. And it was cool how I was seeing multiple people using that same language because it was happening. And if if that moment was in many ways apocalyptic and revealing and unveiling from your perspective. Right, we see the God who writes, you're looking through the lens of liberation, in the ways that you do. What has been or what was being revealed about the United States or the church in the United States during that time as you were watching and viewing yeah. things unfold?
0: Yeah, that's the other thing that the title is in reference to because. I remember in uh, March 2020 when that was those protests had started and in Minneapolis the they set the third precinct on fire and I remember watching the live stream of that and seeing it up in flames and seeing people dancing and celebrating in front of it and at the time since coronavirus had just started there was a lot of uncertainty, how long it would last, how fatal it is. And a lot of people were asking, where is God? Where's God and all this suffering right now? And then when I was watching that live stream, since that was at the, that question was at the front of so many of our minds. I saw that burning precinct and said, that's where God is. That's exactly where God is to be found right now. Among those who are fighting for a new world and celebrating, um, being able to be active in some of their power and try to fight for more power so that we can build a better world. And so I, and and then of course, watching that, I also thought of Jesus and the temple rioting because flipping tables, pouring out coins and driving out the animals that are being bought and sold is property destruction and looting. And yet we look back at Jesus doing that and and being arrested and executed by the state for that. And we're not burdened with the respect for Roman law. And so we tell that story as Jesus was an innocent man, and killed as an innocent man. But from his context, under the Roman Empire, he was executed as a criminal for the crime of sedition. That's the only time people got put on crosses. And so Jesus, I mean, people say, say this all the time, like if Jesus were around today, a bunch of Christians wouldn't like him. But I, I don't think we fully realize, no, we really wouldn't like him. Like Jesus was, would be a criminal. And so a lot of Christians struggle with that, where we're, we're raised to see everything through the lens of crime, instead of through the lens of harm, and realize that there are um like for example parts of protests that are not harmful but are crimes and so mm. they're immediately understood as wrong and must be disavowed and must be condemned but also though, there are plenty of actions within those contexts that are harmful like violent police suppression but aren't crimes and so our understood is, oh, well, that's just, it's not a crime. That's what police do. But if we can see things more through the lens of harm, we can get a wider view of what's going on and be able to have a more honest conversation about what needs to be done, the kind of world we need to build, how do we get there and realize that one day we will look back at these different movements and protests and uh, demonstrations and strikes and realize oh, we're building towards something that needs mm-hmm. to be done. And we see this all throughout history where there are a group of people that experience the constraints of our society the most, or they suffer the most because of the unjust structure of society. And then they speak up about their suffering. And usually they're immediately told, shut up, it's not a big deal. We we don't see what you're saying. We're not experiencing that, so it must not be real. And then they organize and do protests, demonstrations um, and it starts to raise the consciousness of society and realizing, oh yeah, these are problems in society. I just didn't see it. And that's usually met with suppression by the powers of society. And then people start to experience those problems that people are talking about. More and more people experience the problems of the way society is structured as the problems continue mm. and they organize and they revolt and then change is made. And what's also interesting, like if from a theological perspective, when that change is being attempted, so many I'll just be direct here. Christians, not just all religious people, Christians often will fight against it and suppress those movements like we've seen throughout the last century and say, you're you're trying to fight against what God is doing. You're fighting against God because God must have set society up this way for a reason. So if you're trying to change it, you're fighting against God but then after the I mean, change- of
1: course until until you have to wear masks but other than that you know <laughs> yeah. god's placed everything in the way it's supposed
0: to be. What, <laughs> what's funny is after the change is made then christians say oh this was the necessary change that god intended all along mm. <laughs> like we see that with slavery before the abolition of chattel slavery most christians supported slavery then afterward it was like oh yeah of course god wanted us to end slavery and then with a. Uh, martin luther king jr just his existence so many christian leaders were against him and preached how evil he was and you could find state we could find statements online of um like the first one that comes to mind is tim LaHaye, like what tim LaHaye, the left behind author what he said about mlk before he died and then what he said a few decades after is two completely different things like two different people and uh oh hold on I still I'm got you out here. Enough. Okay, so it's a. Uh, that's how change usually happens, and so in the middle of it, it's confusing, and um, but it requires us to think deeply and to listen to what is upsurging from below. And I believe if you're gonna follow this Jesus guy who was among the least of these and said, "Whatever you did to the least of these, you did for me," then that is where we should be paying attention. Mm. Yeah, and my camera so battery good. just died, but I'm just going to turn it on right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I got you. It's so, It's so interesting how people can see symbols or see events happening and have such different reads of it. So you could see demonstrations, fires, you know, sort of people dancing outside the fires, people in the streets and see these. Birth pangs of a new world, see the a symbol of a new thing of, of the old being torn down and a new being built, and how somebody could see that as ca- agents of chaos, and people could see it as destruction, or people could see it as somehow being anti-American, you know, or even anti-Jesus, you know, for people to be doing that. And I think about that sometimes living in Hawaii, being in a colonized space that was colonized and illegally overthrown not that long ago. And the unique form of colonization that has happened here, cultural degradation that has happened here to Kanaka Maoli or Native Hawaiians. And this is where like Oahu is one of the most militarized places there is. Like there's four military bases and this is not a big island. And so you'll see helicopters and like jeeps on the road. Like you'd be seeing that type of stuff, like normal. And I think to myself, well, if we're surfing in the water, And you see jets going up in the air. You see these helicopters coming from bases. I think the natural knee-jerk reaction for a lot of (laughs) a lot of white folks, a lot of Americans, is like these are symbols of what, of freedom, of you know, of America, of the brave, the land of the free, and we're we're liber we're liberators or however they (laughs) see that. Right? I'm like. But for the person who has the lens or the person who has been colonized, the person whose land has not been respected, that has been taken from them, whose people have been killed due to the diseases that came from the West, et cetera, going down the line. Is that a symbol of freedom or is that a symbol of tyranny? Is that a symbol of, oh, that means liberation or that that is a symbol of the force, the system that actually takes away our freedom as working get it's a that's not a symbol of liberation it's a symbol of oppression you know and that's why that lens when you talk about latin american liberation theologians preferential option for the poor like how can you look to people who have never felt the need for liberation to be the people to teach us about liberation? Namely, like white folks, you know, when we talk about the Eurocentric, Eurocentricity, institutionalized white supremacy, like this system has built, been built for people who look like me. How can you then look to those people to be the people who are the ones who can see with clarity the need for liberation? They never had to cry out for it. You know what I'm saying? I had my experience growing up versus black folks experience growing up versus LGBTQ, like it's such a different thing. And to hear from the voices who have been on the underside of power, like you mentioned in the scriptures, this is so much of this sacred text is coming from the side of people who are not in power and, ex- and experiencing the privilege of it, but who are on the underside actually fighting against the oppression and the tyranny of that, you know? So those lenses, how they change and how we see being the beginning point for change, for for social transformation, for upheaval, for revolution. It's like seeing is such a mysterious thing because you can have the same experience as some of your friends going through ministry. And why do you wake up, change, evolve and grow? Why can some people kind of read it and just discard it and stay in the same old framework? You know, it's one of those, exciting things and very it can be a frustrating thing because we all unconsciously sometimes are like how do you not see this you know and with what you were talking about you have i've you have this sense when you look around of you can be all about jesus without being about what jesus was about yeah and that's a common thing, right? Like, we're just mm-hmm. about Jesus, Damon. Like, let's get back to the basics, brother, you know, come home, come on. We're just all about Jesus here. And then because those questions arise is like, why does it always have to be about race? Why does it have to be about politics? Why does it have to be about this? Right. And so with the whole idea of you can be about Jesus without being about what he what being about what what he's about when that sentiment, that energy, and that sort of question arises, like we're just about Jesus, Damon, why does it have to be about politics? Why does it have to be about race? Why does it have to be about poverty or class? What do you feel and think and respond to that sort of sentiment from people?
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, first of all, politics is just about how we structure society. I think it comes from polis, which means citizen. So it's, It's uh, it doesn't have to be arguing and um, and fighting and um, dividing. It's just how we structure society. But because there's so much disagreement about how we structure society, that is why there's arguing and fighting, but it's not that inherently. And so it's, and of course, Jesus when he talked about the reign of God and he talked about what it looks like to live within the reign of god and to live out the reign of god or the kingdom of god he talked about society being structured different differently there was no split of uh, your spiritual ideas and your political ideas it was all one Mm -hmm. and it and we could argue that it is all one today as well. It's just a lot harder to see that because of the ideology of separation of church and state. It's like we can do that, I think, on paper, but whatever we say about one or the other, um, they are connected. And so the uh, when when Jesus talked about in the kingdom of God, the first will be last and the last will be first, that is a restructure of who is in power. When Jesus talked about the hungry being fed and the naked being clothed and um, people being visited in prison and prisoners being set free, that is a challenge to the ways that those in power set up society and who should be fed and who shouldn't be and who should be in prison and who shouldn't be. It So everything Jesus said had political implications and people knew that. And that is why he's put on a cross, which is a political punishment reserved for those who challenged the structure of the kingdom of Rome. And so when there there are many people who were put on crosses and crucifixion was something that happened to thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people. And it's even probably way more likely we have this story of Jesus being crucified between two people. Historically, it's way more likely there's way more people. There's many people crucified all at the same time, and it's done on a hill for everyone to see. So you know what happens to those who stand up to Caesar and anyone else who claimed to be the Messiah before and after Jesus also got put on crosses. Mm. And what often happened, though, is when one of those messianic claimants got put on a cross, their followers would go home and decide they're wrong about who the Messiah was But the difference with Jesus's followers is that they went home and decided they were wrong about what the Messiah was. And they realized that they're called to be the body of the Messiah or the Greek version of the Messiah Christ. They're called to be the body of Christ and in community, do the work of the Messiah instead of waiting for a Messiah to come down from heaven and do the work for them. They realize we are the body of Christ and Christ lives through us. And the debate is what made them change their mind? Was it their experience of Jesus literally being risen from the dead? Was it visions they had of Jesus? Was it a collective reinterpretation of the teachings of Jesus years later? The answer to that question is a matter of faith. And and Christians talk about their different angles of the resurrection. But that shift in the way they interpreted what the Messiah is can be confirmed historically. And I think that is the most inspiring thing about Christianity to me, that this group of people in the beginning of this whole movement decided, oh, we, by uniting together, bodies coming together to form one body, are doing the work of liberation that God has called us to. We're the body of Christ doing this materially right here, right now in how we live and the liberation we create. And that I think is the most beautiful version of religion, faith, spirituality. And so any version of faith worth being practiced today, I think needs to get back to that type of faith, realizing we are called to unite together and together work toward liberation. Mm. And that's what this whole book is about.
1: Yeah, that, you basically answered the last question I was going to give you, man, in, in that flow, man. That's good stuff right there. So with every with every head bowed and every eye closed, <laughs> who wants to be born again and, and continue to follow the God who riots, just if you, if you want to respond with a yes to that, then just DM Damon and he'll tell you yeah. how to move forward. <laughs> no, man, it's so good. Um, there's a quote. It's in the, the, the next book I'm going to, I've been in the research phase that, that I'm about to start writing. So nice. when my kids go back to school and I have a, a normal schedule soon Yeah. and you know, the, the Cornell West, when he consistently says like, you know, justice is what love looks like in public Yeah. And with the whole embodiment of God and, you know, Jesus showing us what God is like. I'm like, if justice is what love looks like in public, then Jesus is what God looks like in public. Yeah. And good. the God who riots is, uh, you know, is a part of what it looks like, what, what God looks like in public. You know, the places yeah. people see problems or resistance might just be the very places that this new world and new life is waiting to be born. And yeah, that last part of, you know, I was going to ask, you know, what do you hope for people to see? But you answered in that last thing that you said. So mm-hmm. for people listening in Damon dot com. Instagram, Twitter <laughs> at who is Damon and then on YouTube, Damon Garcia, where he spends quite a bit of his creative energy, you know, making these video essays. And I mean, that, that's that's that speaks to the uniqueness of where things are as well when it comes to media of a, of a publisher reaching out and connecting with mm-hmm. you through that. that that's awesome, Adam. That's, that's really cool to hear. So please tap in with him wherever you can find him. And um yeah, man, I appreciate you doing this, dude. Congrats! I mean, less than a week from the 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 book coming out. It's a it's a fun, exciting time. I know there was a a delayed. I don't celebrate till now till till then, you know, because you're hyper focused. You don't want to, you don't want to break the the commitment. And I I hope that uh not only that people who get the book will be changed by it, will continue to see a, a better and a more beautiful vision through the eyes of the God who writes ahead and that will sustain and deepen their commitment to be a part of that work that we're doing as the body, you know, like you described so well, right at the end, but I hope man, for, for joy and for, you know, the peace of taking a moment to be like, this is special, you know, this is happening. So I hope you have more and more of those moments, even during this season and in the quick wake of it coming out. So appreciate you, man. Thank you for coming on. Thank
0: you. Thank you so much. Yeah. we'll, We'll keep celebrating. And yeah, uh, yeah, I had a great time on here. All right, bro.